This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, BC Liberal government uh, asking you now, how do you want to work the clocks in British Columbia? How should time be observed in BC? The online survey asked British Columbians, do you want, want to continue to change the clocks twice a year for daylight savings times or... Do you want to keep the clocks consistent all year round? No more falling back and spring ahead. Keep the same time all year long. This is a conversation that's been catching on in other jurisdictions. That's our hot question of the day, which is the B.C. government wants your views on whether the province should continue to observe daylight savings times. Would you ultimately like to see this happen? What would you want or what do you want to see happen? Do you want to see standard time all year? Daylight time all year, keep things the same, back and forth, changing the clocks twice a year, or do you have another idea, which you can do as a write-in on our uh, our poll today? At CKNW on Twitter is where you'll find that. Make sure you vote on that today. At CKNW on Twitter. Phone me on the buzz line on this one today. Do you want to see uh, the clock stay the same all year round? 604-331-BUZZ is the number. 604-331-2899. If you've been reading my columns in the province newspaper, which I encourage you to do, the last couple of columns I wrote were about the Union of BC Municipalities. So this is the annual gathering of mayors and councillors from around British Columbia. They get together. They talk about policy resolutions. They, they do a lot of good work at the UBCM. I think it's an important organization in our in our province real grassroots local government which is the closest level of government to the people so i think it's an important event now this is a huge convention it seems like it gets bigger every year they got like two thousand delegates you imagine that two thousand it's like every mayor and councillor in bc goes to this thing it's like a four day long stretches even longer sometimes there's events before and after too so here's the deal on this thing now if you've been reading my recent columns the government of the People's Republic of China, an official sponsor of this event, and they put on an annual reception uh, for all the mayors and councillors. Now, you think about the breakdown in relations right now between Canada and China. They've detained a couple of our citizens over there in apparent retaliation for us arresting one of their people. Uh, we got some trade disputes going on. I mean, there's just lots of friction points here between Canada and China right now. Should this organization really be rolling out the red carpet for China right now? And if you've heard Brad West, the outspoken young mayor there in Port Coquitlam, he's leading the charge on this thing, uh, calling for a boycott of the reception. He says the UBCM should take give the money back and not take money from China. Now, here's the newest wrinkle on this, and check this out. What is wrong with this picture now? The B.C. Liberal Caucus at the legislature, this is the official opposition, B.C. Liberal MLAs, they are going to the UBCM this year. They are putting on a series of panel discussions, encouraging mayors and councillors to come out, meet their MLAs, talk to them about their priorities for the province. They've done this in the past, and they asked, could you please include us on your agenda? Please put us on your website, put us in your printed program, put us on your mobile phone app. 
the BC, the Union of BC Municipalities said, no, you got to pay money for that. You got to be a sponsor. Who do you think you are? The People's Republic of China? We're not going to put you on our agenda. You got you to pay money. This is pay to play. The government of China pays. So they get in the program. The official opposition at our own legislature, they don't pay. They don't get to play. They're not on the official program. What is wrong with that picture, I ask you? I'm going to ask Todd Stone that right now. He's the liberal uh, liberal MLA. He's the municipal affairs critic for the official opposition. Todd, thanks for coming on. Uh, it's always good to, to be on with you, Mike. Okay, I found out about this from you yesterday. I mean, can you tell me what's going on here with this? Well, uh, it, you know, I certainly, uh, I certainly understand the concerns with respect to uh, to, to the the, the, uh, the the People's Republic of China reception, and, and there's there's two very different sides to that discussion for sure. But um, my primary concern as uh, the municipal affairs critic for the official opposition is is uh, on behalf of our 42 member caucus. You know, we're the largest caucus in the legislature, all elected uh, by uh, folks across British Columbia. Uh, my primary concern is to make sure that at the annual uh, Union of BC Municipalities Convention, uh, we are uh, doing everything that we can working with the UBCM to facilitate uh, meaningful engagement opportunities uh, between uh, locally elected officials and uh, uh, the provincially elected officials of our caucus. Right. Uh, so, uh, you know, last year uh, we tried, uh, you know, we, we, we did put on three sessions. Uh, we had a breakfast with our, our leader, Andrew Wilkinson, as well. We tried to, to get the UBCM uh, a year ago to include uh, those items in their uh, agenda so that uh, just from an awareness perspective, their delegates uh, would know about it. Uh, and uh, you know, we were re- rebuffed at the time, but the UBCM said that they would work uh, with us uh, on perhaps a different approach for this year's convention. Well, um, uh, this year, uh, you know, we put in the same request. Uh, we want to hold a, an important panel discussion on housing. We want to do a, an important uh, discussion on uh, addiction and recovery uh, and, uh, and, and uh, ec- you know, ec- local economic issues like the forestry crisis uh, and uh, so we put the same request in. Uh, Arjun Singh, the president of the UBCM, um, who I, I spoke to in person about this several times, uh, he then sent me a, a, an official letter saying, uh, "No, sorry, uh, you can't be on the agenda unless you uh, unless you sponsor uh, the UBCM convention." Uh, much like Harrison, uh, BC Hydro, and and, uh, and obviously the People's Republic of China. So we're just not prepared to spend uh, taxpayers' money uh, out of our caucus budget uh, to. Uh, uh, facilitate engagement opportunities between locally elected officials and provincially elected officials. That is absolutely uh, absurd. Okay, when you say taxpayers' money, you mean like because you guys, this is the official opposition caucus at the legislature. You're funded by taxpayers' money. You guys have a budget there. So if you were to knuckle under to the UB to the UBCM and say, okay, okay, we'll buy a sponsorship so you can we can get in your program, you'd have to give them money out of your budget at the legislature so that's taxpayers money that's taxpayers money and and you know let's how much how much do they want how much do they want uh, you know what? I never, I, I never entertained that discussion with Arjun Singh uh, and the UBCM uh, because there's just absolutely no way whether it was ten dollars or uh, or six thousand dollars in the case of uh, uh, the People's Republic of China. Um, we're not prepared to spend taxpayers' money to facilitate engagement opportunity. Remember, Mike, uh, the UBCM was founded and and it still has as its core mandate today. Uh, it, 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 really bringing local officials together with provincial yeah. officials right. to shape provincial policy that impacts local government. 
So, you know, sure, our caucus is not the government of the day today, uh, but there are 42 of us. We are the largest caucus. We do play a role in the legislative process and helping shape public policy at the provincial level. Um, Engaging uh, in a meaningful way at the UBCM convention uh, is is a benefit uh, to to all the locally elected officials around the province as much as it is to us. Right. I agree with you. I I think that the official opposition events should be included on this uh, agenda and I think it's absolutely ridiculous that they're rolling out the red carpet for China and the official opposition is not included on this thing because you didn't, you didn't pay money. I think that's just absolutely off, ridiculous. I think that's crazy. Um, if you guys go, you guys are still planning to go ahead with the events though, right? We're still going to go ahead with yeah. it. Uh, you know, we, we did three last year. We had uh, one of them we had about 30 people at, uh, the, the third one we had five people at. Uh, now, is, know, is that because delegates, you got, as you said, uh, that's you not got a, a lot of people. Yeah, you got a low turnout because do you think that's because you weren't on the agenda? Maybe a lot of delegates didn't know what was going on. Well, it, there, there's there's a heck of a lot going on at the UBCM convention for for certain. Not just UBCM uh, uh, content, but lots of other things. As as has been pointed out by the UBCM, fair enough. But uh, to 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 lump uh, the official opposition and whether we were. Uh, we're, you know, we're BC Liberals, or whether it was a, a, an NDP official opposition caucus, to, to lump that official opposition into the same basket as BC Hydro or Terrason or, or China, uh, in, in so far as a sponsorship policy is, is, uh, is, is absurd. Uh, and that's that's yeah. really uh, really our our our, con- our concern here. Um, we uh, uh, we we want to work with the UBCM. There, there, there's a tremendous uh, value that uh, that that comes out of that organization. A lot of hard work that uh, uh, these locally uh, elected officials do. Uh, we just see it as a tremendous benefit to maximize the engagement uh, between uh, right. between us and them. Uh, but but uh, having to pay for that uh, that access or pay for that that engagement. Uh, and Mike, we're not we're not asking to compete with UBCM content. Uh, you know, you mentioned the uh, the letters that went back and forth. My letter to to the UBCM on behalf of our caucus, I said very clearly. Uh, you know, we will we will we will schedule our times at the most inopportune times for us, so as not to compromise any uh, you know. Uh, UBCM content. We don't want to overlap with yeah. critical UBCM sessions. Right. Um, our, our leaders' breakfast, for example, is uh, probably at the worst possible time of the week at the UBCM. It's at six thirty in the morning on the Friday uh, at the very end of the conference. Um, but that's fine. We we get it. We're official opposition. We just just put us on the program so that the delegates can make a choice uh, uh, personal to them to to each uh, each of themselves if they want to want to come to. Uh, one of our sessions or our, our leaders' breakfast. Right. Uh, that's, right. that's all. That's all we're asking for, and we don't think we should have to pay for it, and certainly not with taxpayers' money. Okay, I'm glad you're speaking up on it. Thanks for coming on to tell the people about it today. You bet. Thanks, Mike. Okay, as Liberal MLA Todd Stone, he's the official opposition critic for Municipal Affairs. Now let's talk about the BC government now encouraging drivers to switch to electric vehicles. They got some ambitious targets here with this uh, John Horgan NDP government here. They wanted to get to 100% zero emission vehicles by the year 2040. Now that's, of course, many years out, but they've got interim targets too. Like, look at this one. By 2025, that's not very far away, they wanted to hit 10% of new, new vehicle sales in BC would be zero emission vehicles. Now, they had some really interesting programs here to incentivize that for you, to get you to buy an electric vehicle. Look at some of these rebate programs they had. Some of these were, were great. You could get a rebate 
of $5,000 on a, a new fully electric vehicle. The, the feds had one too. Another five grand from the feds. This is a good deal. You know, I was thinking like, oh, maybe we sh- I, our family should maybe get an electric vehicles down the road here. They, some of these uh, incentives make it very interesting. Look what the BC government's doing now, though. They're cutting these rebates. They're cutting them, and they're also cutting a bunch of the vehicles that are eligible for the rebates. They tried to sneak this out, too. They put it into a, a news release on the weekend on Saturday, Sleepy Saturday, and they buried it in a news release. They tried to finesse this out and, and on people and hope people wouldn't notice on the weekend. That's not going to happen. People have noticed there that they've cut these incentives for uh, electric vehicles. Why are they doing that? Let's check in with Bear, uh, Blair Qualley now. He's the president and CEO of the New Car Dealers Association of BC. I understand he's also the chief car washer for the uh, association. Is this correct, Blair? Yeah, there you go, Mike. I've <laughs> called all sorts of things, but chief car washer is just fine with me. That's not a bad title, actually. I kind of like that. Yeah, there you go. All right. So tell me, when did you hear about these cuts to these incentives? It used to be 5000 bucks. was this provincial rebate. They've, they've cut it to 3000 When did you find out about that? Yeah, well, the government announced it uh, in a news release, I guess, about 7.30 on Saturday morning to uh, to the public. Uh, as we administer the program, they uh, gave us a little extra time because we had to make a bunch of changes to a number of systems. So we heard on Friday afternoon what, uh, what they were looking to do. But uh, it all became effective at 12.01 a.m. on Saturday morning. Okay, so now instead of a 5,000 rebate, it's a, it's a, it's a 3,000 rebate. And also the uh, they've lowered the maximum price threshold for a vehicle right so it used to be uh seventy-seven thousand dollar you could buy a, a vehicle valued up to seventy-seven thousand dollars and still get the Correct. rebate now yep. they've dropped that fesh- threshold to fifty-five thousand dollars that's right, right? fifty-five thousand dollars is actually the uh the, the price at which uh, luxury tax on vehicles kicks in in the province so okay. and it also more closely aligns i think with the uh, the federal government's program yeah, they did a couple of things, uh, basically, uh, with the desire to sort of stretch the money uh, that uh, has already been approved for uh, for this fiscal year in the budget from February. Uh, as everybody may have noticed in, in May when the federal program came out, uh, everybody ran to the door to take advantage of what was at that point up to $10,000 off of a vehicle wow. with the two, pro- two programs, which is a tremendous incentive, and and it worked. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but it, it, it's almost you know they're almost it worked too well almost. Uh, yeah. the government had allocated forty two million dollars for the clean energy vehicle program incentives uh, in the February budget, and uh, we're already uh, significant. You know, we're at least fifteen million dollars into that. So there's another twenty seven and a half million dollars or so uh, that needs to be allocated and put on the counter for the program. Okay, so it, it's almost like, what, is this program kind of a victim of its own success in a way? I mean, they put these very juicy rebates, dangled them in front of the public, and guess what? The public liked it and started buying these vehicles, and now now the government's saying, like, whoa, uh, we're giving away too too much money here? Is that the is that their concern, costing too much? Well, I think, I think they realize that, you know, they're not, you know, unless they're prepared to put more money into the program beyond yeah. the $42 million they committed, that... Uh, you know, at some point in you know the fall, based on the activity level that we were seeing, it was probably going to run out, and they didn't want it to run out. They want to make sure um, as many British Columbians as possible who are interested in 
taking on uh, an electric vehicle can do so. So uh, they thought by reducing those two parts of the program, that might help stretch the money a little further and give more British Columbians a chance to uh, okay. buy out an electric vehicle. What do you think of that? I mean, do you think that's a reasonable thing for the government to do, or are you guys disappointed that this rebate's been dropped? Well, I mean, you know, we're all uh, in the same, you know, vein of wanting to move as many British Columbians to electric vehicles as we can. And, uh, you know, clearly the, the stronger incentive was really doing that. It's a little too early to see with the reduction in uh, incentive what that's going to mean to uptake of electric vehicles. But we're confident that, you know, it's still going to be uh, adequate to uh, incent uh, folks that are interested in electric vehicles to uh, to do so. We'd always like to see government put more money into the program and continue yeah. the previous levels, but you know there's not a mo- bottomless pit of money for that apparently. So uh, we're we're glad that the program is still there and and the incentives are available okay. for uh, for more British well, Columbians. You're being very diplomatic there. I think that. Um if someone was in the market for an electric vehicle and they were taking a look at these programs saying like, gee, I can get 5,000 from the feds, I can get 5,000 from the province here, man, this looks, I'm kind of interested in this. And then all of a sudden they pull the rug out from under you a bit. You know, that's kind of disappointing for someone who was thinking of buying one of these vehicles, isn't it? Oh, no, clearly, you know, there's, uh, we've heard from lots of uh, our members, uh, the car dealers who are hearing from their customers. And I've heard from a lot of customers directly that, uh, they're disappointed. They were expecting that the incentives would continue at the levels they were. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we're working with the government and our dealers to try and make sure those folks that were already in the process had put down a deposit, uh, that a vehicle had actually been ordered from the factory for folks, uh, that those people are grandfathered under the previous rules, the old uh, incentives. So that'll uh, look after a lot of those folks. And Unfortunately, when you know a decision like this has to be made, uh, you know you draw the line, and some people will be one on one side, and some people, unfortunately, are on the other side. And, and government had to make that call, I guess. Yeah, so they've grandfathered in people who've already put down a down payment. Then is that correct? Yeah, there's a couple of you know it's not just a down payment. There also had to be a vehicle actually ordered. We need to see an order, uh, purchase order from uh, a dealer to the factory to show that a vehicle was actually ordered, as well as the deposit. And if that's all in place and they fill out the application correctly, the vehicle qualifies, then they'll be able to get the old incentive. Okay. Do you think, speaking to Blair, uh, Blair Qualley from the New Car Dealers Association of BC about these uh, cuts on the rebates that the provincial government has just announced here on uh, electric vehicles, um, do you think the government can hit these, these targets here? I mean, they have very ambitious targets for zero emission vehicles, they want 10% of all new sales to hit uh, by 2025, which is uh, a short window, but also 100% by 2040. Shouldn't the government put its money where its mouth is here? I mean, if they want people to switch to these electric vehicles and then they turn around and cut the rebates, I don't, you know, it just seems to be counter counterproductive to trying to achieve their goals here. Well, we're uh, we're already. I think uh, you know. Last we checked in some numbers, uh, we were sitting at probably six to eight uh, percent already of all of vehicle sales were electrics in British Columbia. We're number two or three in North America after California, okay. and I think Washington State. Um, so you know, if you look at just car sales versus EV sales, we're probably fifteen point four percent. So we're doing very well. Uh, okay, ten you percent know, as you mentioned by twenty twenty five. Uh, that's probably doable, assuming the incentive program remains beyond this year. Uh, you know, it's difficult when industry is asked to meet these uh, these targets 
and not have incentives, uh, it's going to be very difficult, to, you know, as, particularly as we get closer to the 2040 target. You know, uh, I'm not sure in northern British Columbia and other parts of the province, uh, you know, we'll be able to achieve those kinds of numbers uh, unless technology comes along with electric pickup trucks uh, okay. very soon. What's the, uh, what's the cheapest electric vehicle out there in the market right now or more reasonable priced one? Uh, well, you know, I, I think a lot of them are in sort of that, you know, 35 to 55, 60 range, depending on, yeah. you know, before the incentives. Uh, depends on what you get in. The base models uh, are, are around that area, and the more, you know, features you add and, and uh, options, they become more expensive for that. Okay, they were trying to sneak this out, though, weren't they, Blair? Like, the way they, they buried that in a in a news release on a Saturday, come on. They were, they were hoping people wouldn't even notice this, I think. What do you think? Well, I, I you know, from a, a business standpoint, uh, on behalf of our members, I think, you know, they were at least looking to make sure it was done at the least disruptive time instead of during it, doing it in the middle of a week. At least it was done on the weekend where yeah, they hoped okay. that uh, there were fewer transactions and fewer disruption. Oh. Uh, we'll, we're not sure that that was totally successful, but uh, I, I think that was their intent. Okay. Thanks for coming on. You bet, Mike. Thanks. I, I appreciate it. Blair Qualley, president, New Car Dealers Association of B.C., Let's talk now about getting hooked on video games. Did you know video game addiction has just been recognized by the World Health Organization? It's now officially listed as a disease called gaming disorder. Is someone in your family addicted to video gaming? Do you think gaming addiction is maybe exaggerated a bit? Well, let's talk to an expert now. Jing Shi is a researcher on video game addiction. She is a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. And I'm very pleased she could join us. Hi, Jing. Hi, Mike. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. How did you get into this uh, very interesting area of study, uh, uh, researching uh, video game addiction? How did you get into that? Right. Well, I was working as a therapist for a few years, and... While I was in school, I actually had friends who dropped out of school um, because they were playing a lot of video games and they couldn't hold a part-time job because of video games as well. So then I decided to go back to do my PhD and to do research on video games to try to help my friends. Okay. Do you ever play video games yourself? I started playing when I started doing my research. Okay. And yeah, so I've been playing ever since. <laughs> okay, you're not a gamer yourself though, or would you consider yourself to be a gamer? Like my kids call themselves gamers, my two boys. Yeah. Yeah, I I think I consider myself a gamer. Yeah, I play regularly and I play all different types of games too. Okay, do you agree with the World Health Organization listing video game addiction as a disorder? Um, so it's interesting because after doing more research on the topic, I actually disagree with the disorder for the time being. So I think it's too early to currently classify this as a, as a disorder. Uh, I just don't think we know enough about video gaming yet. We don't know enough mm -hmm. about um, what issues there are, what the symptoms are, what exactly the disorder itself is right now. Okay. Is, is video game addiction, though, a real thing in your mind? Um, I think that there are people who experience significant problems uh, because they are playing video games, but whether or not video game addiction is a cause or the consequence of other problems is still up for debate and is still being debated within the scientific community. 
Right. What can be the impact of someone? Let's say someone's playing way too many video games. Maybe they were, you know, if it meets the clinical definition of addiction or not, it can still be harmful. I think on people, right? Mm-hmm. So, sorry, your question: whether or not what, what is uh, what, the what, what is the impacts? Yeah, what are the impacts of it if someone is, you know, they're playing too much, too many video games? It's kind of starting to dominate their life uh, somewhat. What can be the impact of that? Right. So, in a lot of cases, people miss school or don't go to work, and they neglect other self-care skills like sleeping, eating, um, basic personal hygiene. So those are some of the negative consequences. But relatively to other addictions, it is um, more minor. So compared to gambling, you can lose everything, all of your finances in one day. Uh, Compared to substance disorders, you're getting extreme physiological changes. Um, and really bad illnesses, physical and mental illnesses, um, uh-huh. as a result of doing drugs. So gaming, um, in a lot of sense, it's interfering with their daily lives. And in the long run, if they have prolonged excessive use, they may experience more physical health issues. How can that be treated? Like if someone was to come and come to you and say, I need help, I, I, I feel like I'm addicted to video games, how can someone be treated for that? Um, so... Treatment on gaming is still developing. Um, A lot of treatments are based off of other behavioral disorders, like I mentioned, uh, gambling. Um, But I think the main issue with gaming is to really understand the person and to understand why they're engaged in gaming so much. So are they engaged because they are feeling anxiety and want to withdraw from the world, or are they experiencing other family issues related to it? Is it because they have lack of resources to participate in other activities. So um, everyone's gaming for different reasons, and different games bring about different types of satisfaction. So it's important to really understand the person and on a case-by-case basis what they're going through. Okay, I'm speaking to Jing Shi. She is a researcher into video game gaming addiction. She's with the Institute for Mental Health uh, in, in Toronto. It was, it was interesting to, to see the kind of academic debate that kind of erupted after the World Health Organization mm-hmm. listed video gaming addiction as, as, a, as a condition called gaming, gaming disorder. Do you think that, is there, are there some academics or people who think that maybe this is exaggerated a bit and maybe it, it's not as bad as maybe people think? And maybe there, I don't know, maybe there's some upside to video gaming for people. Yeah, there's definitely um, many arguments against making the formalized gaming disorder. Mm. Uh, for example, many scientists are concerned that this will cause a diagnosis inflation, diagnostic inflation where every behavior we do, like watching TV, going dancing, going fishing, can eventually become a disorder. So everything mm. we do in life. Well, then, if you're doing it excessively, if you're watching raptors a lot, you have raptor addiction or something like that. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, there is a concern, um, but mostly because there, we need more objective scientific evidence to say this is an addiction rather than the consequence of something else. It's not a symptom of another underlying issue. Are there certain types of video games or genres of games that have more, I guess, addictive qualities to them or that cause people more problems if they find themselves playing them too much? Uh, There's been a lot of study on multiplayer online games. Yeah. 
So I think because of the social aspect of it and also the endlessness of these online games um, could potentially have longer, um, longer cause more problems. But uh, there, I've interviewed gamers who play solo games and just PC-based closed games, and they talk about the addictive properties of that too. So um, I think different types of games could have different impacts on the person depending on the person. Right. Which game would you say do you hear the most of for people saying causing a, a particular game that's caused a problem? What would you put near the top of your list there as the one that's causing the most difficulties for people? Um, I can't really say a particular <laughs> particular game. I've heard a wide range of games, all different. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think there's an up, do you think there's an upside to gaming? I mean, I mentioned here I got I got two sons who who play video mm-hmm. games. Sometimes I wonder, oh, maybe they're spending too much time on this, but on the other hand, they have a they have a ton of fun playing with their friends online and stuff. I mean, do you think that maybe yeah. we over we worry too much about it? Yeah, and and that's part of the concern from us um writing the debate letter for the World Health Organization because we're thinking this might cause moral panic especially with some parents to see that, you know, gaming is a disorder now, I better not have my child play. Whereas there's a lot of research indicating there's so many benefits, like um, increased hand-eye coordination, building social skills online. A lot of these games are not played in isolation. Like your sons might be playing with their friends who live across the city, who they might not be able to see and hang out regularly, but they can socialize online. And it's become, you know, it's not just video games, it's become this whole subculture of gamers people who identify as gamers yeah yeah do you think it could depend on the individual gamer though i mean like you might have you might have a situation where one kid is playing a lot of online video games and having fun with it and they're totally cool with the rest of their life and they got a balanced life but you have another kid who might just get sucked into it and just playing it too much to the to the sacrificing other parts of their life mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's true and that's i think that's the case with a lot of behavioral addictions so, for example, for gambling, about less than 1% of gamblers experience severe gambling problems because of it. But a lot of us can also play and um, still have a balanced life, like you said, and not experience yeah. any issues. Yeah. Okay, it's an, it's an interesting uh, area of study for you, for sure, and it's uh, one that's evolving rapidly, especially with the World Health Organization stepping in there recently. So thanks a lot for coming on today to talk about it. Thank you very much. Okay, I appreciate it. That is Jing Shi. She is a postdoctoral fellow at the Institute for Mental Health Policy uh, in Toronto. It was a wild night last night at Surrey City Council. Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum and Surrey City Councilor Stephen Pettigrew going at it. Yeah, this, these guys used to be on the same team. Pettigrew used to be a member of uh, McCallum's party there, the Safe Surrey Coalition. He recently quit the Safe Surrey Coalition, and uh, they had an interesting uh, encounter last night at Surrey City Council. Janet Brown, the very fine Global News senior reporter, has been covering it all. Hiya, Janet. Good afternoon, Mike. Thanks very much. And yeah, it just wasn't one encounter last night, Mike. It was virtually throughout the entire meeting, really tense. And I don't know, one word to describe it, maybe fireworks. Um, You know what? Instead of me describing it, let's play some of the audio from the meeting last night and let the audience, Mike, hear what unfolded at Surrey City Hall last night. Great. The procedure of this council has listened to me, council. Of our procedure bylaw, which you said that we follow, says 
a member made any meeting give notice of motion here if she wishes to consider the next regular council meeting. Yes, and that you, yeah, and that, council, I have advised council that if anyone wants to do a notice of motion or other business, it's very clear that they are to come to the chairman first and talk to the chairman if they want that. That was, a st that was, a st that was, that was, Look at our bylaw. Is this bylaw enforced or is not? Are we a city of law? Councilor, Councilor, Councilor. Okay, okay. You're out of order now, and we're going to a motion to adjourn the meeting. Somebody move it. Seconder. All in favor? Against? Carried. Wow. Wow. I know earlier uh, McCallum was threatening to have him Pettigrew removed from the council chamber, right? He absolutely was right yeah. at the beginning of the meeting when Mr. Pettigrew stood up and he was talking. And, and it is unusual for a councillor to stand up and address the, the chambers. Usually they're seated. And at that point, when Pettigrew was going on and on, that's when the mayor said, look, if you don't sit down and, and wrap things up here, I'm going to have you remove point of order, point of order. And, and that exchange that the audience just heard there, Mike, uh, it was throughout the council meeting last night. Uh, Pettigrew said he was only trying to get the mayor to clarify uh, how he was running the meeting, uh, either by the Roberts Rules of Orders or City of Surrey Procedural Bylaws. And Pettigrew was also trying to get several uh, notice of motions on the table. He was shut down with those. Um, after the meeting, of course, I wanted to speak to both gentlemen to get both sides of the story as to what unfolded there. I ran down one of the aisles in the uh, council chambers yelling out to the mayor, Mr. Mayor, Mr. Mayor, uh, I need to talk to you, please. I was only a couple of feet from him, and he exited right out of a side door. Um, I, so I, I still needed to talk to him, of course, to get his side of the story of things. So I ran down into the City Hall Parkade, and I found him there approaching his vehicle, and I caught up with him, and I said, hey, what was going on in there? And here's what he had to say. Yeah, I think it was very disruptive, um, and um, I think I'm, I'm going to ask our... Um, our human resource department to see whether um, they can provide some um, help to him because I think um, he's feeling overloaded and he's um, not handling the uh, stress of council very well. So I, I think uh, we can offer some help to him to see whether um, we can um, get him to um, behave in a professional way on the council. When you say get him help, what do you mean? Well, I, I think that um, we need to look at maybe he's having some stress in his um, life and, and the pressures that council brings. Um, it's a very steep learning curve um, for somebody that's never been involved in it. And I think he's having a hard time handling that, that steep curve. Oh, wow. Wow is right. Okay. So after that exchange, Mike, I ran back up into City Hall in the lobby, uh, thankfully ran into Stephen Pettigrew uh, to get his side of things as to what he felt unfolded in council chambers, and here's what he had to say. I wanted to set some guidelines and find out exactly how council meetings are being run and what procedures and rules we're following. That was my main intent. What happened in there, it was basically a, a, it wasn't a yelling match, but there was a lot of arguing going on there and the mayor threatening to throw you out. Yeah, I've just wanted to get uh, simple answers to questions and find out, you know, what are we following? Are Robert's rules of orders, are they part of our council proceedings or not? And apparently they're not. 
the only thing that he references apparently is our procedural bylaws but that wasn't referenced because I called him on that later on and he just shut me down and staff is uh, trying to figure out what to do right now so it's yeah it's very interesting are you concerned he's not going by Robert's rules of order there are, Robert's rules of order are not being followed in our council chambers I asked him that that was my specific question to him and he he sidestepped it and he answered by saying that the only thing that we're following is basically the procedural bylaws, the city procedural bylaws. So the Robert Rules of Orders are not being followed. I attempted to follow those tonight by, um, by, by calling it a point of order, and um, that was just ignored. So, yeah, they're, they're, they're not being followed, that I can tell. The mayor feels that you're overwhelmed, you're stressed out, and he's going to ask staff if they can help you in any way. How do you respond to that? The only um, stress that I'm getting is basically from the mayor by not allowing us to be able to speak and to do our jobs as councillors. And uh, staff, staff is good as well. I don't know, so every job has a little bit of stress to it, but that's, that's fine. I don't feel stressed out right now. I'm, I'm, I'm at peace. Okay, really fascinating stuff, Janet, and a great job covering this story. So what exactly was Councillor Stephen Pettigrew, like, what was he trying to do? Like, I noted your story, he was saying he was trying to get some motion, or, uh, motion, uh, notice of motions brought forward and couldn't get them forward. What, what are these notice of motions that he's trying to get on the agenda there? Well, there were uh, several, actually. Uh at least four that he was trying to bring up. Uh, He wanted to bring up something about transmission lines in the city of Surrey. Uh, There's also a proposal to take down the old North Surrey Rec Centre, which includes two sheets of ice and a pool, in order to build a new YMCA facility with a new pool, etc. But he he doesn't want that facility entirely torn down. He wants the pool to remain because he says it's needed in that area of Surrey. So that's another notice of motion he wanted to bring forward. Later on, too, a couple of uh, councillors, Brenda Locke, Jack Hundile, also told me they had plans to bring a notice of motion forward for a couple of items. I don't know what they were, but they weren't able to do that uh, Mm. because the meeting was shut down early. But I'm presuming it was shut down early because of what was unfolding in the chambers. So it was kind of a gong show last night. It really was. And it certainly (laughs) caught me by surprise. And a lot of people who were there to participate um, in the public hearing portion of the meeting were kind of looking around going, "Is, is this really going on? Like, what, it, does this normally happen in here? So it, w- it was pretty crazy, that's for sure. And as you noted, Mike, uh, Mr. Pettigrew parted ways with the mayor just a couple of weeks ago, leaving the Safe Surrey Coalition and sitting as an independent. So going forward over the next, you know, not just this year, but the next three years until the election, what's going to be happening here at Surrey City Hall? And you know what? The key thing in all of this, and a lot of people were saying to me, too, uh, last night, to this morning, you know, with all what is going on, is anything actually being accomplished yeah. by City Council? That's the key thing. W- what are they accomplishing if the meetings are being shut down early, if there is this squabbling going on? You know, what's happening at the city level? So well, it remains a, to be seen. That's a great point, because... Because this is a mayor and a council that has a very ambitious agenda from a new police department to a SkyTrain line and all the other pressing issues in the city of Surrey. And if McCallum is having trouble keeping his own councillors on side that are in his own party, or in this case, one councillor has left his own party, what does it say about McCallum's control of the situation and his ability to deliver on his promises? Any thoughts on that? 
Well, you know, I mean, Mr. McCallum is focused, and he, he's not a time waster, that I know. And, yeah. um, I, and I guess you have to ask, too, what were, what were Mr. Pettigrew's intentions? Uh, was yeah. he really wanting to get these notice of motions on the table? Was he trying to embarrass the mayor? Because clearly he's, up, he's been upset with the mayor for some time. Um, uh, you know, was it important for him to find out, and I believe it was, uh, how are the meetings being run at Surrey City Hall? Is it by the Roberts Rules of Order, or is it by the City of Surrey procedural bylaws? Because everybody knows who follows councils in Metro Vancouver, that most council meetings are run by Robert's Rules of Order. And that's what Pettigrew's been upset with for some time. How is the mayor running these meetings? Is it, is it according to the Robert's Rules of Order? And, and, and he's wondering why, why he can't get his notice of motions on the table, why he can't speak to some issues. So there's some real, you know, real difficulties going on at Surrey City Hall right now. Um, they break for the month of August, but I believe they have one more meeting before before they take that break next month, uh, pardon me, in August. Um, pardon me, it, it's still okay. June. They have a couple of meetings in July, and then they break in August. So, you know, it would be great if they were able to take a, a, a break right now and catch their breath, but we've got a few more meetings to go yet, Mike, before yeah. they do break. And, um, you know, who knows what's going to happen okay. over these, these next few weeks. Okay, some turmoil there in the city council chambers, to be sure, but there's, there's still a lot of big big jobs to, to get done there in the city of Surrey, and primarily I'm thinking about the police uh, transition. Mm-hmm. Janet, do you have any update on that? Where are we with the police plan? Well, I did ask the mayor last night uh, because, uh, as you probably know and the listeners, uh, the consultation, five-week consultations have wrapped up on moving to a, a Surrey police department, a civic force from the RCMP. Um, the results the city put out yesterday that 93% are either strongly in favor or in favor of, of transitioning. So that, that part of it's all done. So the only thing left now is to wait to hear from Solicitor General Mike Farnworth. Will he approve this transition or won't he? And as we've talked about before, Mike, in that policing report that went from the city to the province, it talks about wanting a new chief of police in place somewhere between July and September. So the clock is ticking, and now that the uh, public consultation is over, over, the next shoe to drop is Mr. Farnworth to step in and say, does he approve it or does he not? And for what reason? So everybody's waiting. The mayor said last night to me that he's hoping that decision will come sooner rather than later. So I'm thinking in the next couple of weeks for sure, Mike. Janet, great job as usual. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you, Mike. That is Janet Brown, a senior global news reporter reporting on the uh, turmoil at Surrey City Council last night. We talked about how rates of smoking and especially vaping among young people has gone up uh, quite dramatically some calls to increase the smoking and vaping age to age 21 currently 19 in british columbia also did you know that this week is smoke free housing week have you ever lived in an apartment or a condo maybe you're a non-smoker but your next door neighbor smokes can cause problems in the, in the building as a whole, even if you don't smoke in your own unit, if you're getting secondhand smoke from next door. Let's talk about all these issues now with my guest, Jack Boomer, director of the Clean Air Coalition of BC. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hiya, Jack. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks a lot for coming on. Let's start with that age limit, first of all. What do you think of this idea to go into age 21 for uh, to buy uh, cigarettes and vaping products? You know, uh, we would be absolutely delighted if the provincial government took the leadership role to, to move the legal age to 21. In fact, it's actually sweeping across the United States. Uh, Connecticut just became the 16th state 
in America to move the age to 21 uh, to purchase cigarettes because the problem is that most kids, most youth start smoking, adults start smoking before the age of 18 and uh, upwards of 85 to 90 percent. So if we can delay the actual likelihood that they might be able to start smoking, then there's a good likelihood that people won't even start in the first place. I wonder if it would make much of a difference if you take a look at the recent trend lines, especially this uh, study that came out of the UK about uh, the number of young people who are smoking and especially vaping um, up 74%. This is incredible. Uh, Yep. Absolutely. When when you look at the stats, it's it's staggering uh, in terms of the percentage increase like that. Um, so what we've seen over the last year is that rates were about five percent amongst uh, uh, those seventeen and eighteen, and it moved to almost ten percent, so almost doubling in just one year. And part of that is the explosion of that. There's no real rules against promotion of e-cigarettes and vaping products. Uh, that while the government has moved to say you have to be 19 to purchase the products, there's ways around it through the internet, uh, through friends, and that just provides more ammunition to say why we should be raising the legal age to actually be able to purchase the products to 21. Yeah, but if if rates are going up so high among kids who are 16, 17, 18 right now, would it make any difference if you go to an age 21? They're going to smoke anyway. Well, you know, the the... Sometimes there's some, not you, uh, nothing you can do about sort of the ones that might be doing something now. And what we want to do is we want to encourage and put uh, the regulations in place now that, uh, you know, this is kind of unchartered territory. It has been. And yeah. I think the provincial government, as well as the federal government, has been a bit slow to the table, even though groups like the Heart and Stroke Foundation, the Canadian Cancer Society, and the Lung Associations across Canada and in BC here, we've been encouraging the provincial and federal governments to take strident and stronger action. Um, the the okay. challenge with e-cigarettes is that there are many people that are smokers who have used them in their journey to quit smoking. Right. And so that's the public health conundrum. And we've had this discussion before, Mike, where if you're an adult and you're trying to quit smoking and you've tried the patch, you've tried the gum and it hasn't worked for you, you try vaping and that might be the thing that uh, assists you to quit. And I bet there's a lot of call people listening that have said, you know what, I switched to e-cigarettes and it's helped me, um, I feel better. I was talking to a gentleman yesterday who had switched and that's exactly how he's feeling. The problem is the e-juice is not regulated. There is no regulations about how much nicotine is in the e-juice, what are the chemicals in the e-juice. So it's a bit of a wild west in terms of what can be in the product. And so we are calling on the provincial and federal governments to have stronger regulations around the product, as well as uh, it would be great uh, to look at uh, increasing the age of when people can purchase the product. Okay, speaking of Jack Boomer from the Clean Air Coalition of BC, talk to me about clean uh smoke-free housing week well uh, mike this is an issue that uh we've been working on since 2004 so 15 years and this is something when we first started working on it uh was when we were getting the proliferation of smoke-free bylaws in bars pubs restaurants and so now people go to their workplace and I would say 99% of workplaces are 100% smoke-free. There might be a workplace or two that isn't. But basically, it's a law to have a smoke-free workplace indoors. What's happened is people go home, 
and they know that secondhand smoke is harmful. And people live in, about 50% of British Columbians live in congregate housing, whether it's multi-unit dwellings, uh, apartments, condos, townhouses. They, this time of year, they open their windows because it's nice out and their neighbor might be smoking. And the smoke comes into their unit and they go, oh my God, what can we do about it, right? And so what we have been doing over the last 15 years is educating landlords and strata corporations that it is legal to create smoke-free bylaws and smoke-free rules and to encourage people to speak out and say we want smoke-free um we want to live in a smoke-free building. And so we have a whole bunch of resources on our website at smokefreehousingbc.ca as well as at the cleanaircoalitionbc.com where we have created tons of resources. Um, We have tons of stories that we've put on about people who are so severely affected by secondhand smoke in multi-unit dwellings and and what they're trying to do about it. In fact, one person you people may be familiar Naomi she created a whole petition around yeah. uh encouraging the government to go smoke free right right yes i've spoken to her in the past do you think smoking should be banned in condos and apartments uh yes i think that uh what we should be doing is we should be moving towards making them 100% smoke free in fact believe it or not in thailand i believe it was recently that they have just uh, created and saying that there can be no longer smoking in uh, uh, in uh, Thailand as of uh, August 20th. Uh, so in, in, in condos and apartments? Yeah, in uh, okay. a law prohibiting smoking at home will come into effect on August 20th in Thailand. Wow, wow. Yeah. Okay, uh, do you know what percentage of apartment buildings and condominium buildings right now are smoke-free? Do we-, we have no idea. We know that uh, we, since uh, about a year ago with the uh, pending legislation around cannabis, we were getting tons of requests from condo buildings in particular, requesting what can we do to prevent smoking of cannabis in the building. And mm-hmm. so um, that helped spur a number of buildings to go 100% smoke-free of any substance in their building. But we have no stats. Where can people get more information about your organization? We have lots of information at the cleanaircoalitionbc.com and smokefreehousingbc.ca. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mike. All right, that is Jack Boomer. He is from the Clean Air Coalition of BC. Okay, let's talk about the Digital Utopia neighborhood proposed for Toronto by Alphabet. That is the parent company of Google. This is a plan that's been put together by Sidewalk Labs. That's a sister company of Google. And the plan is, it's quite astonishing, this plan, actually. A high-tech, cutting-edge neighborhood. It's outlined in a 1,500-page report released this week. It would start with 10 new buildings, 2.7 million square feet of residential and commercial space in the Toronto waterfront. This would be a high-tech, wired neighborhood, self-driving cars, street sensors to monitor traffic and pedestrian patterns, everything connected and coordinated by a public Wi-Fi system. Uh, This has got some people excited and some people worried. Some people wonder about the profiteering by a big tech company like that. Also, the privacy concerns uh, being raised as well. Let's check in now with Dr. Ann Kavukian, a distinguished expert in residence at Ryerson University, my alma mater, (laughs) <laughs> the former privacy commissioner for the province of Ontario. I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hi. Hi, Mike. Thank you. 
thanks very much for coming on. You used you were uh, working as a consultant at one point for with Sidewalk, right? This uh, Google Google company. Yes, yes, they had retained me as a consultant to embed privacy by design, which is something I developed years ago into the smart city that they envisioned. Yeah, and, and I uh, said I said I'd love to do that, but know that I'm going to be a thorn in your side if you don't do the highest level of privacy possible. <laughs> right. Okay, I don't doubt that at all. So when you saw the 1500-page report that came out this week, what did you think? I, I wanted to go further in terms of privacy. Uh, one of the things that I had insisted upon was that all personal information, must, all data must be de-identified at source, meaning you've got to anonymize the data the minute it's collected because you're going to have technologies on 24-7. Sensors will be collecting your data all the time. So there's no opportunity for people to consent or revoke consent about their personal information. So I said if you de-identify all the data the minute it's collected, then you will have still lumps of data, but it will be anonymized, and you can use it freely. And that didn't happen. Okay, de-identify means, okay, they can collect sort of traffic patterns and pedestrian patterns and shopping patterns and that kind of thing, but you're not identifying anyone individually. Exactly. You're not identifying people's faces. You're not identifying people's license plate numbers on their vehicles, which you could track. We don't want, we don't want smart cities of surveillance. We want smart cities of privacy, and that's how you start from the bottom up. How, what are these sensors? What kind of data would these all these sensors be collecting? It'll collect everything. So the traffic monitoring, for example, cars coming and going, where they're going, at what time of day. I mean, imagine if you're always late to work because you're shopping or doing some, something you shouldn't be doing, and that ends up in the hands of your employers. Don't think these things don't happen. I always tell people you've got to beware of the unintended consequences of the data collection. Okay. Um you were working as a consultant with Sidewalk. You're obviously critical of the plan that they've released. So have you parted ways with them now? I resigned about uh, six months ago, maybe a little longer, right. uh, because of the following. They, at, at one of the board meetings, they were telling everyone that they were creating something called a civic data trust, which is referred to as an urban data trust in this report. And they said... They did this because they were being criticized in terms of who's going to govern the data. It can't be Sidewalk Labs that decides how to use the data. And they said in response to that, look, we're happy to share the governance of the data. We'll create the Civic Data Trust consisting of multiple parties, Waterfront Toronto, the municipal government, provincial government, and various IT companies that are working on this. And then they said the following. They said, of course, we'll encourage them to de-identify data at source, to anonymize it, but we can't make them do that. And you see, the minute they said that, I knew I had to resign because no one is going to do this if you just leave it up to them voluntarily. Personal information is a treasure trove. Everybody wants to collect information in personally identifiable form. You can track it. You can send advertising to it. There's so much you can do. And when they said that, and they hadn't consulted with me on that because they knew what I would say, I resigned the following morning. Wow. Okay. I'm speaking to Ann, uh, Dr. Ann Kavokian. She is the former privacy commissioner for the province of Ontario. And we're talking about the, the smart neighborhood proposed by the parent company of uh, Google in, in Ontario. Where, where does this, uh, this proposal go from here? I mean, this sounds like such an ambitious and expensive uh, project. As, it uh, is. As, yeah. Where does it yeah. go from here? Well, it's with Waterfront Toronto, the governing body, and they will have months uh, to review it, of course, because it's extensive. But the good news is this. When I resigned from Sidewalk Labs, Waterfront Toronto, their board, called me right away, and they said, come work with us. We believe in de-identifying the data, anonymizing the data, 
so that it won't be an intrusion into privacy. We'll still have lots of data, but it won't be linked to personally identifiable individuals. So I'm now working with them to make this happen. They're committed to it, and I applaud them because they believe in the privacy of the residents of the area, the Quayside. And so I think we're going to make this work. But they, of course, have to review this 1,500-page master plan, and this will, of course, take considerable time. But rest assured, privacy is going to be strongly embedded into this, no question. What does Sidewalk Labs say, this uh, comp- this Google-affiliated company, when, when they talk, when they face the criticism of this data collection, what do, how do they respond? What do they say they want the data for? That's a good question. These are all the um, gray areas that will no doubt uh, be resolved with the review of this master plan. See, the problem is we we don't know exactly how it's going to be used. And we have to insist on whatever the governance of the data is, however it's decided to be used, it can't involve personal information. See, once the data are scrubbed and you don't have personal identifiers in it, then you are free to do much more with it in terms of traffic flows and congestion and all all kinds of things. But we have to insist upon the data being de-identified right at the time it's collected at source, full stop. That has to be a condition of joining this urban data trust they're creating. Right. I mean, they're talking, the way this is described is almost like kind of a brave new world of a a smart neighborhood, everything wired and everything being extremely efficient. That sounds great, but do you think, is there, yeah, I mean, is there, is there a way to do this right, like to protect privacy, but still have all the benefits of this technology? There is, if you de-identify the data right at the time it's collected and anonymize it. I I keep repeating that because it's essential. Otherwise, you will end up having smart cities of surveillance instead of smart cities of privacy. I'm on the International Council of Smart Cities, and you should look at all the smart cities being developed in the Far East, uh, Shanghai, Dubai, China. They're all surveillance cities. They, They know everything you're doing. All your activities are tracked, your movements. There's no freedom. There's no liberty. We can't have that here. What are the what are the specific dangers there of a of a I think that's an, an amazing turn of phrase there a smart city of surveillance what is what are some of the dangers of, of that Oh my god it, in China they assign social credit numbers to everybody so anyone walking on the street if you're jaywalking you'll get fined you'll get contacted you, you will be prevented from engaging in certain activities going to certain uh, jurisdictions you'll be pe- penalized the state has full control that is the antithesis of privacy. And we can't have that. Privacy forms the foundation of our freedom. So if you value freedom and liberty, you value privacy. Right now, we take it largely for granted. Once it's stripped away, you will see what happened in Hong Kong just last week. They are defiant. They do not want to be part of China with absolutely no freedom whatsoever. That's what we have to enjoy here and preserve for our children, for our grandchildren. We have to insist upon this. Okay, who gets to make the calls on this? If you get your way, you want the city of Toronto to put their foot down on this, that if we're going to allow this, it has to make the, meet this criteria? Who, who makes the call on that? It will be this organization called Waterfront Toronto, yeah. and they will be making the, um, the decisions, and I'm going to be helping them in any way that I can in terms of privacy. Okay, we continue to watch this one with keen interest, okay. and uh, thank you very kindly for coming on. My pleasure. Thank uh, you. I appreciate it. That is Anne Kavukian. Uh, Ryerson University.